All right, so uh, our series title is The Incarnation of Christ. That's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks. And uh, this week, as I said, we are on uh, love. The theme is love, and, and our topic for today is uh, the humanity of Christ. Now, as you all know, uh, Advent goes by in an absolute blur, right? It's hard to believe we are on uh, Christmas Eve already. It just happens so fast. And I'm sure you all still have a long to-do list of things that, that have to get done before uh, tomorrow morning, but uh, for, for these next 30 minutes or so, uh, I pray that we can all just focus on uh, Jesus's humanity, what that means to us, uh, his miraculous birth, his sinless life. Uh, we have a Savior. We have a Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the Lord, and the book of Hebrews says, he was tempted in all ways, just like we are, and yet did not sin. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? Like you and I can barely get out of bed in the morning before we're trying to figure out how we're going to satisfy our own desires and needs for the day, right? Our feet don't even hit the floor before we're thinking of things like that. How can anyone live for 30 plus years and not entertain these sinful desires and then act on them? And yet Jesus did. So our minds can't fully comprehend how Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man. Last week, we focused on the 100% God part, Jesus' deity, uh, how it is that Jesus could be fully God. And, and maybe that's easy for you to believe, that Jesus was fully God, because, you know, let's face it, his, his, his conception was miraculous. You know, it's not every day that the Holy Spirit conceives a baby uh, in, a, in a woman's womb. Uh, and it's not every day that, that a person can live their entire lives without sin, because they're born without a sin nature. So uh, for these two things to be true, this, this child would have to be God. Uh, and so maybe that's not a hard thing for you to understand and to wrap your mind around. But the idea that Jesus could be 100% God and 100% man at the same time, well, you know, the math doesn't add up, right? That's a difficult thing for us to comprehend, to wrap our minds around. And so we'll talk today about how he proved that he is fully humanity and, and why that's important, what that means to us, how he had to be both 100% God and 100% man in order to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. So we'll talk about that today and we'll, we'll, we'll tie that up into our theme for the day, which is love. I remember that in week one, we talked about a hope, the pre-existent Christ, and why that matters to us. Uh, Jesus was there in the beginning, being God and with God, uh, planning not only the creation of the world, but planning uh, to handle this problem of our sin and what to do about that. And the plan was for Jesus to come, take on a human flesh, live a sinless life, and then die for our sins. Uh, so Jesus was there in the beginning, planning that, the pre-existent Christ, uh, pre, pre, uh, before he became uh, a human is, is what I mean by that. So he, he has lived eternally. And then he appeared to people after humanity uh, was created. He appeared to people in the Old Testament, helping them, warning them, disciplining him, uh, them when necessary. And all of this gives us hope that, that for God uh, to appear in the flesh and to be there even before appearing in the flesh, uh, this gives us hope because uh, if God cared so much about us then, before Jesus was even born, clearly he cares about us now after Jesus was born and lived the life he lived and died the death he died and then rose from the dead. So that should give us hope. In week two, we talked about how Jesus was predicted uh, in Old Testament prophecy and, and depicted uh, in typology, in, in people and events of the Old Testament. And we said that the fulfillment of prophecy ought to give us peace because uh, God 
is sovereign. He plans everything in advance. And if he could predict in advance that Jesus would come uh, and live the life he lived, uh, we can trust that because he predicted the first coming, that the second coming we can trust as well. God's promises are true and can be trusted. And so we can have peace in a chaotic world because God has a plan. In week three, we talked about the deity of Jesus and how it gives us joy, uh, how Jesus proved uh, not only by his birth, but his attributes, the miracles, the authority he claimed, and most especially by his own resurrection, that he is God. And we said only God can do the things that Jesus did. And how that's important to us is that uh, only one on equal footing with God could satisfy God's wrath against sin. Only one with equal status with God uh, could be God and satisfy God's wrath against sin. I think this rain is God's approval uh, on what we're talking about this morning. I think he's very happy that we're talking about the deity uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So only one who lived this sinless life could satisfy uh, God's wrath and be the perfect sacrifice that our holy God demands for our sin. And we ought to have great joy uh, because our Savior was born fully God. And so today we'll focus on the other side of that coin, Jesus' humanity, and we'll answer four questions. Uh, What is the proof that Jesus was fully human? If Jesus was fully human, how could he not sin? Why is it necessary to our salvation that Jesus be fully human? And how does Jesus' humanity show his love for us? So first question, how does Jesus prove that he was fully human? Well, first we have his birth, right? The conception of Jesus was supernatural. To be conceived by the Holy Spirit is a supernatural event. But his birth was a natural human event. He was born uh, through the womb uh, of a woman just as we all were. And so his birth was natural. He was born just the way all of us are born. And so he left his mother's womb, entered the world uh, just like we did. So his birth is, is proof of his humanity. Second, his body. Uh, Jesus had a body. It was flesh and blood. He was born as a helpless baby. Uh, he could not sustain himself. He needed parental care to feed him, to clothe him, to shelter him, uh, to care for him. Uh, he required the help of Joseph and Mary to survive, just like all human babies do. So uh, his, his body is proof. His mind. Uh, Jesus had a human mind. Luke 2.52 says Jesus increased in knowledge and wisdom. Now that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, that God himself, who is omnipotent and omniscient, uh, who knows everything, could increase in wisdom and knowledge. And yet, because it's hard to understand, does not make something not true, right? He was, he was certainly born as a baby with a mind that needed to develop uh, from the human side of things. Uh, so his mind is proof of his humanity. His emotions are proof of his humanity. Uh, Jesus uh, wept when he talked to Mary, the sister of Lazarus, Lazarus when, when uh, Lazarus had died. Uh, he wept over the city of Jerusalem, knowing that Jerusalem was about to face judgment because they had rejected their Savior. He got angry when he saw the people in the temple courts uh, selling, uh, selling uh, wares and selling uh, uh, sheep and other animals for things above market price. He got, he got angry when the, the money changers were, were making a profit. He called this uh, a den of robbers when it should have been a place of worship. So that made him angry. Jesus saw the people and he saw he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And his heart became troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, when he knew that his uh, crucifixion was only hours away. And so Jesus had human emotions as well. 
And he also had physical limitations, right? Jesus <clears throat> sat when he got to the, to the woman at the well. Uh, it was midday and he was tired from walking, physical limitations. Uh, he became hungry and thirsty just like we do. He said, woman, give me a drink. He was thirsty. To get from here to there, he walked just like you and I would walk because he couldn't transport or wouldn't transport himself uh, from one place uh, to another. So he walked just like we do, unless you know, he chose to walk on water that day. That would be different. Uh, but for the most part, he walked on land like we did. When night came, Jesus slept like everyone else. Sometimes he even took naps in the middle of the day, falling asleep on the boat and having to uh, be woken up when uh, the apostles thought that their lives were in danger. So uh, just a word to the wise that naps are biblical and we all ought to take them. Uh, so he, he, he napped. Uh, so his, his birth, his body, his mind, his emotions, his physical limitations, all of this prove uh, that Jesus was fully human. But if that is true, then how can Jesus be human and not sin? That's really the hardest question, isn't it? Like, if, he can, if he's human, then he has to sin. Otherwise, he's not fully human. So we have to struggle with this question. All humans sin because we have a sin nature. We're born with this sin nature, and we all give in to temptation every now and then. Now, we hope as we grow in the Holy Spirit and, and the knowledge of the Lord that we sin less over time. Uh, but given enough temptation, you and I surely will fall into sin uh, sooner or later. Uh, but the Bible says Jesus couldn't sin. Uh, theologians call this Jesus' impeccability. Impeccability. He was impeccable. He could not sin. But how could he be human and never sin? Uh, and if he couldn't sin, how can the temptations that he faced be real temptations if he can't sin? Well, then aren't those just human temptations that, that uh, really had no effect on him? Well, I think what we have to remember is that though Jesus was 100% human, he was also 100% God. So he's got 100% God nature, 100% human nature. And though if he only had a human nature, he may have been tempted to sin in all the ways that we are. Yet because he had a divine nature as well, he couldn't sin. But if he couldn't sin, then how are his temptations real? How are these temptations actually real? Well, think about Jesus on the night before his death. He knows what's coming the next day, right? And he knows he has the power to smite all his enemies with a word, right? He could have ended the threat there and then, no problem at all. And in his humanity, he might have considered doing such a thing. But he knew that that was not the plan. He knew that that was not God's plan for his life, not his plan that he created for his life. But his human nature was surely temptable. Surely that crossed his mind. You know, I could, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from me. Surely it crossed his mind that he could have ended the threat, no problem, on his own. And yet in his divine nature, his divine nature trumped, triumphed over his human nature. Uh, and he did not sin. James 1.13 says God cannot be tempted by evil. And so Jesus was not tempted to, to do something against the will of the Father. And he could not do that because he himself is God. Another example is Jesus' temptation uh, in the wilderness. Remember, Satan comes to him and offers him three different temptations. Uh, you know, turn these stones into bread. Uh, you can do that, Jesus. Why don't you turn these stones to bread? And, and in his humanity, he may have been tempted to do it. Remember, he had been 40 days in the wilderness without food. He must have been starving. And if it were up to me, uh, I probably would have done that. In my humanity, I would have turned those stones to bread. But again, he knew that that would not glorify God. 
And so he was temptable in the sense that, that surely he considered doing such a thing, and yet uh, his divine nature triumphed over his human nature. Does that mean his temptations weren't real? Well, I think they were very real. I think, I think the temptation to do that, at least from his human side, were very real. Uh, you and I would have probably fallen in that situation. But, but the difference is between our susceptibility to sin and Jesus' susceptibility to, to sin. He had no susceptibility to sin because he had no sin nature. So Jesus never wilted under, under temptation like you and I might do. And that's why the author of Hebrews could affirm that he was tempted in all ways, fully human as we are, and yet was without sin. Now, these are very difficult things to understand for us to wrap our minds around. And the early church surely wrestled with the doctrine of Jesus' humanity uh, and his deity. And so various heresies arose as to the person of Jesus Christ uh, over the early centuries. One said that Jesus had a human body, but a divine mind and spirit. And that was one way they tried to reconcile this. Uh, one said that there are two separate persons in Jesus Christ, a divine person and a human person, like 50% God and 50% man. One said that Jesus had uh, two natures, uh, a, a human nature and a divine nature, that merged into one new nature. Uh, and another one said that Jesus didn't have a real human body. He was God and then was more like a ghost uh, in his humanity. And there were more. They were trying to work out how it is that Jesus could be a God, which the Bible clearly says, and human, which the Bible clearly says. And so the early church councils were held to, to define Christian orthodoxy uh, in terms of, of Jesus' humanity, in, ter in terms of the nature, the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, in the early 4th century, in 325, uh, we had the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed stated that Jesus was both human and divine. Uh, so it says, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. So we have this idea that Jesus is God and that he is man. But it wasn't until later, until 451 AD, the Chalcedon Creed, that really set forth Jesus' 100% deity and 100% humanity. Listen to this as they, as they uh, wrote this down, the Chalcedon Creed. <clears throat> we apprehend this one and only Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten in two natures, without confusing the two natures, without transmuting one nature into the other, without dividing them into two separate categories, without contrasting them according to area or function, the distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. Instead, the properties of each nature are conserved and both natures concur in one person, in one hypostasis. They are not divided or cut in two, but are together the one and only begotten Logos of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you read that, you understand that this is written in response to these various heresies that I mentioned before. They're answering the question, who is Jesus Christ? And of course, this creed affirms that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Not that Jesus needed the creed to affirm that he was 100% God and 100% man, obviously, right? He was that. It just took centuries for theologians to finally, you know, at least articulate what it means uh, that Jesus had two natures fully and for them to understand it and be able to write it down uh, in a way that, uh, that, that, that accounts for what scriptures teach about Jesus, the two natures of Christ. So with this Chalcedon Creed, all other uh, theories about Jesus' nature uh, were considered heresy. 
And so Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And theologians call this the hypostatic union. That's a big fancy word uh, that basically means, hypostasis means the substance of a thing. Uh, the substance of a thing. Jesus' very nature, his very essence is to be both 100% God and 100% man. Now, is that hard to understand? Well, of course it is, right? If there were things about God that weren't hard to understand, well, then he'd be just like us, right? He has to be hard to understand. He has to be mysterious. And that is why theologians have wrestled with this doctrine for 2,000 years. Does that make it, under, uh, hard, make it not true because it's hard to understand? Well, of course not. Uh, that doesn't make it uh, impossible at all. Uh, scientists, for example, have been trying to figure out how light can act as both a particle and a wave at the, at the same time. Now, they should be one or the other. The laws of physics say that you're either a particle or a wave. Light exhibits the, uh, the characteristics of both. How can that be? They have no idea. And yet, that doesn't make it not true. Uh, they take what they see on faith while trying to understand how these things can be. And that's the same thing for us in theology, right? There are things we can't understand, like the hypostatic union, like the Trinity. These things we accept by faith, even though we can't fully understand them, but we try to grapple with them. We try to wrestle with these, these things to understand what the incarnation means and why it is important. Jesus being fully God and fully man are necessary to atone for our sin. So last week we talked about the 100% the God part, why that's so important, why he has to be 100% God. For Jesus to satisfy God's wrath against sin, he had to be fully God because God decides what will satisfy his wrath. And only one on equal footing with God can satisfy God's wrath. And so this week we'll talk about why Jesus' 100% humanity is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. It's a hill that we must die on. Jesus was 100% God. So let's look at this beautiful passage from Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll see why Jesus had to be 100% man. Hebrews 2 verses 14 to 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil." and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. For he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted." That is a, a mouthful. There is a ton of theology in that. But let me just pick out three reasons from uh, these verses why uh, Jesus had to be 100% human. And the first one is to break Satan's power. And this is from verses 14 to 16. The reason Jesus had to be fully God is that he might break Satan's power and free those who are held in fear, slavery, because of their fear of death. And so we see here one of the reasons, one of the purposes for Jesus' incarnation. He was born to die, and his death frees us from the power that Satan holds over us for our own fear of death. Now, we might ask, well, why does God allow Satan to live in the first place? Why did God ever allow there to be a Satan? 
Well, I think in some ways it's for our benefit. It brings God glory and it brings us this peace because we know that Jesus had to be born. He had to live this perfect life. And then because he died and because he rose from the dead, we know that for us, we have this history. As faithful followers of Jesus, we know that if God raises Jesus from the dead, then we who are clothed in Christ will also be raised from the dead. So this is for our benefit so that we don't have to have fear of death and and Satan can't have this hold over us because we know that Jesus has gone to heaven ahead of us as our forerunner and we will follow him if we are in Christ. And so knowing that death has no hold on us removes Satan's power. And that's only possible if Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. Another reason is that uh, he was uh, fully human so that he could be a substitute on our behalf. Uh, This is also from these verses in Hebrews, starting in verse 17. He had to be a merciful high priest. Now remember, the high priest once a year came on the Day of Atonement and offered uh, the the blood of bulls and goats for the sin of all the people uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies. Now, Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, is our high priest now, offering his own blood once and for all for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of all people. He doesn't bring the blood of bulls and goats. He brings his own blood. And so what we see here is that God requires a perfect sacrifice for sin. The sacrificial system that God established required uh, that the people bring one perfect male, one-year-old lamb without blemish uh, to be sacrificed, a real sacrifice to atone for God's wrath against sin. Now, Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system by being fully human, living this perfect life that we could not live. He had all the experience that we sinful humans experience, and yet uh, he did not sin. And that was necessary for him to be an acceptable sacrifice to God. He was the lamb without blemish. And so that's what Jesus is. And we know that the whole human person needs redeeming. It's not just our bodies or our minds or our thoughts uh, or our souls. It's all of those things. And so Jesus had to be fully human in all ways like we are in order to be that sacrifice, in order to redeem our entire person, body, mind, and soul. And so being like us uh, in humanity, he is able to now represent us before God because he has experienced all things we have, did not sin, and offered himself as a sacrifice. So he was a substitute on our behalf. And he also had to be human to help us. Verse 18, Jesus experienced every form of temptation we do and yet didn't sin. And so he knows what we're going through. This is the essence of love, right? When Jesus uh, comes and he experiences all things we do, now he can say, look, I've been where you are. Uh, I understand what you're going through. I can help you. And when you're going through something, you want to talk to somebody who's gone through that same thing as well. And Jesus says, that's me. I am here for you. I have experienced it all. I love you so much. You can come to me. You can talk to me. Uh, Jesus suffered and was tempted in all ways, just as we are. And that's why, as Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, right? He's experienced them all. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. And so Jesus promises to help us by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. And since there is no temptation that Jesus did not suffer, he can help you, he can help me in our temptations. 
Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, he said, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way so that you can endure it. Well, Jesus is the way. He is the way that, that God provides for us so that we can get out from underneath this temptation. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can not sin. Through prayer, uh, through obedience to the Holy Spirit, Jesus' obedience can be our obedience when we uh, accept his help and not feed our sinful desires. We can say, get behind me, Satan. We can say, not today, Satan. It's not going to happen today. I am going to stand strong in the Lord today whenever these sinful thoughts pop into our head. So Jesus' humanity breaks Satan's power. It qualifies him to serve as our substitute, uh, to, to receive God's wrath for our sin, and it helps us when we are tempted. So all of these things make it necessary that Jesus be 100% human. Now, let's just pivot a little bit and talk about how Jesus' humanity shows his love for us. And I love this passage, Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." I love this passage because it shows the eternal Jesus, right? In, in, in eternity past, uh, in real time during his life, and now after his death and resurrection uh, and all that's happening with him. The whole panorama of Jesus' uh, deity and eternality is on display. And so I just want to point out three things that Jesus accomplished here that shows his love for us and why it matters to us as Christians. And the first one is that he left heaven. He left heaven. You know what it's like uh, when you're sitting in your favorite easy chair uh, on a Sunday afternoon uh, and the phone rings and on the other end is a friend of yours who needs a ride to the airport or he wants you to haul in this heavy TV that he just bought from Best Buy or whatever and you're like, oh, you know, I don't want to do that. I'm so comfortable in my chair right now. Uh, yet, because you are friends with him, you will get up and do that. Now, you know, take that minor inconvenience and try to imagine, if you can, what it would be like to be Jesus uh, in heaven, enjoying perfect peace and harmony with God for all eternity, and then to have to leave that uh, and take on a human body. Uh, that, we can't fully comprehend what that is, but, you know, for us, a minor inconvenience for him, he left heaven uh, and, and, and took on a human body. Uh, that is, is really staggering because, you know, he and his relationship with the other members of the Trinity, it's nothing bad ever. It's perfect love, peace, and harmony. Uh, more love than we can imagine being poured out among the members of the Trinity. No human body with its frailties and limitations. Jesus left heaven. He gave all that up because he loves us that much. Because humanity needed saving. Jesus gave it all up. And so he did not regard equality with God uh, a thing to hoard for his own benefit. And that's the meaning of, of, of grasped, uh, to hoard for his own benefit. 
Uh, he left heaven, heaven knowing full well what awaited him because he planned it in advance, what was going to happen to him. And so uh, Jesus did that for us. And for us to, to imagine Jesus leaving what he had, perfect love and harmony, uh, to take on a human body and experience all that he would experience uh, is an incredible expression of his love for us. So he left heaven. Secondly, uh, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. We see that in this passage. There was never a moment that Jesus ever stopped being God. He was always God, 100%. But to say that Jesus emptied himself means that he deprived himself of the use of certain of his divine attributes for his own benefit, when they were for his own benefit. Uh, so he did miracles that only God could do. He healed people. He fed people. Uh, he raised people from the dead. But, but those things weren't for his benefit. They were for the recipient's benefit, that they might experience the love of God, uh, that they might know that Jesus Christ is God, and that they might believe in him, and that they might be saved as a result. Uh, and so uh, he never emptied himself of deity. But what he did do was give up certain things. Uh, one thing he gave up was his glory. That's why he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, uh, please, when glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is Jesus referencing the glory he had before he came down and took on human flesh. So he gave up his glory. He also gave up his honor. Isaiah 53 is all about how uh, this prophecy about how Jesus would be despised and rejected of no account at all. Jesus, the most honorable uh, in, all, in all the universe, uh, is, is treated as a lowly slave, uh, killed on a cross. And so uh, he gave up his glory. He gave up his honor. He gave up his divine attributes when, when doing so would have been to his advantage. He easily could have killed his enemies, like I said. He easily could have come down from the cross. This is child's play for God. But yet he chose to stay because he knew that by staying on the cross, that would achieve our salvation. And could there be a greater expression of love than that? And so uh, he emptied himself. He also died for our sins. Our sin deserves God's just condemnation. We deserve eternal separation from God. But in love and grace, God chose to satisfy his own wrath by pouring it out on himself through his son Jesus Christ, rather than pouring it out on us. Jesus was substituted for us. He paid the penalty that we deserve, and he died in our place because of our sin. John Piper, years ago, wrote a book called 50 Reasons Jesus Came, and here are just a few of the reasons that, Jesus, that, that Piper gave. To absorb the wrath of God, to show the wealth of God's love and grace for sinners, to provide a means for the forgiveness of our sins, to provide the basis for our justification, to take away our condemnation, to reconcile us with God, to free us from the slavery of sin. We've talked about all these things this morning. This is what Jesus' humanity does for us. All these things are available to us. All these things Jesus accomplished and more on the cross for us. Jesus endured every bit of God's wrath against our sin on the cross for us so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could be reconciled with God and live forever in heaven with him. So Jesus, uh, Christmas is about Jesus's birth, and we celebrate that uh, and the glory and the wonder of it all. But we can never separate Jesus's birth from his death. It's all wrapped up in the same purpose. Uh, the love of Jesus is beyond human love. So I ask you as we close here, do you know 
how much Jesus loves you. Like down to the very depths of your soul, in every cell, every fiber of your being, do you know how much Jesus loves you, that he would do this for you and for me? If you've never experienced the love of Jesus Christ, then I would just uh, implore you today to submit your life to Jesus, to surrender your life to Jesus. Uh, All you need to do is to tell him that you know you are a sinner, that you're sorry for your sins, and you want to receive God's grace and forgiveness. And it'll be done before you even finish uttering that prayer. Now, I'm assuming that most of you here have experienced the love of God, that you know in the depths of your soul how much Jesus loves you. We know we're not the, most, uh, the least remotely worthy of this kind of love. We haven't earned it. It's given to us. It's grace. He pours out his love on us because of how much he loves us. And so Christmas is not about material gifts. It's about the greatest gift we could ever receive. And so have you received it? That's my question to you this morning. Have you received the love of Christ? If you have, uh, then your Christmas should be very merry indeed. And so I wish you all a Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Now, Lord God, it's, it's hard to, for us to wrap our minds around these things. And we receive this love uh, that you offer, uh, that is such perfect love, Lord, that we can't comprehend it. And we do our best uh, as, as humanly we can to, to love you back, Lord. And, and we know that we disappoint you from time to time. But we also know that because we have chosen uh, by your grace and by uh, your purposes uh, that we would receive your love, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for this amazing gift. I started on Christmas Day uh, and with the resurrection, Lord, for all who believe. We're just so grateful for this gift that you give. Lord, thank you for your birth. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.